Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, we'll meet the owner of Iowa's newest independent bookstore, Reading in Public Bookstore and Cafe in West Des Moines. But first, a true music legend, a true American legend, is coming to Iowa this weekend. Dion Warwick and IPR's Lucius Baum got the chance to talk with her. Hello. Hello. Oh, my goodness. Is this Miss Warwick? Yes, it is. I'm Lucius Fahm, and I am honored to be joined today by the incomparable Dionne Warwick. And not a lot of people you can introduce like that. I've always I've always wanted to say that, so thank you for being <laughs> on. Thank you. <laughs> so Dionne Warwick, for those who do not know, signed her first recording contract in 1962 and went on to chart over 50 hit songs like Walk On By, Deja Vu, and A House Is Not A Home. Sold over 100 million records worldwide. She's got Grammys and stars on Walks of Fame, but above all, she's got that voice. The moment I wake up, before I put on my makeup, I say a little prayer for you. Oh, I'll go in my hand now, and wondering what dress to wear now. Now, you have toured the world performing music internationally and is this going to be your first time in iowa yes it is actually uh it's my pleasure you know being invited to uh perform in places that people say hey we want you to be here with us too it's a judge to comply well it really is a beautiful venue and uh, i'm looking forward to that show for sure um i've got a lot of questions to ask you today about your career and love and I'm just wondering where you might want to start. Right. <laughs> well, usually the beginning is the best place to start. <laughs> then let's try and start at the beginning. Um, where Where's the beginning for you? Where does uh, you... New York City. New York City. And you were born in New Jersey, is that correct? Yes, sir. Correct. I, I, I kind of want to take you, if you could put yourself back in the shoes of your time as a vocalist on tour with Sam Cooke and Ray Charles... There's going to be a lot of big names in this story and just this interview. So you've touched so, so many, just the fabric of American music. So it's hard not to name drop. But, you know, can you put yourself back in the shoes of that time um, when you were, what was it, 18 maybe around that time? Like, what did the future look like for you at that time? Well, I was on tour with many, many megastars at that point in my life. Um I had a hit record called Don't Make Me Over. It went on after that to walk on by, and anyone had a heart and a few others that hopefully people remember and know of. And uh, graduated from those particular tours to world tours. So, you know, it's kind of difficult to capsulize 60 years in <laughs> 10 minutes. Uh, you have such a storied career. We could spend all day and not get to half of it. So, you you collaborate a lot in in the pivotal uh, beginnings of your career with with Burt Bacharach and and Hal David. Um, uh-huh. I, I'm wondering if just 
something about that relationship you'd like to, to shed some light on? We basically all met at the same time. I met Bert first while doing a background session on a song he had written with another songwriter, Bob Hillier, for The Drifters. And uh, after the session was completed, he asked if I'd be interested in continuing to do more demonstration records and background work on songs you'd be writing with a new songwriting partner, Al Davis. There's there's so many songs that I attribute to you that are uh, Bacharach joints, and I, I'm just wondering, uh, are those Bacharach songs? To me, those are all Dion songs. So you know, you uh, continue to say Bacharach. It was a trio of people that made those particular recordings. Bacharach David Warwick, and we cannot Backrack negate David the name Warwick. David. Absolutely. So how David is. A, the most probably the most vital part, hundred percent of that of that trio, because without Hal Davis lyrics, we'd all be humming instead of saying beautiful words to each other. So I want I want to really make that clear from the very onset that we will never ever say Backrack's name without mentioning Hal Davis. Let's let's get right yeah. into some Hal David lyrics right now, if you don't mind. Um, Not at all. I'd love to talk about. One of my favorite songs of yours uh, is "I'll Never Fall in Love Again," mm-hmm. and it's it, your your approach from the beginning with the words. Um, right when you come in, it's this sort of instant cynicism, as if you're speaking from experience, having fallen in love before. I'm gonna just recite a little bit of verse <laughs> one. I'm no Dion Warwick, so if you want to help me, no pressure. But what do you get when you fall in love? What do you get? But I'll Never Fall in Love Again is really the central theme of that song. And for you to go in these circles talking about, you know, your your history with love and not wanting to fall in love again, while this... No, that, that had nothing to do with it. That song was written specifically for the play Promises, Promises. Yes, from 1968, uh, uh, right? Right, exactly. And I recorded it um, well into after the play was on Broadway. So uh, the, the song has nothing to do with my personal life at all. Sure. It has to do with everything that Al Davis wants to write for that particular part of the play. I just can't help but separate those words and the emotion that, that you've given me presenting those words, you know? that I guess that was my struggle <laughs> there, <laughs> getting those mixed up. Well, I'm just- I'm, I'm glad it affects you doing that, right? Because that is the purpose of Hal David lyrics. Well, I think uh, probably the most powerful part of the song is is the bridge. My favorite part is when you say, "Don't tell me what it's all about," because I. Well, basically, I'm 
uh, that's, that was my part of the trio, was to interpret what was written for me to sing. Mm-hmm. How David wrote some of the most prolific words for me to sing. How Fred wrote the most incredible melodies for me to sing. And it depends upon me to bring that to your listening ear to have you believe what was being given as the composition. Let's talk about uh, your 2014 album, uh, Feels So Good, really briefly. CeeLo Green, Jamie Foxx, Maya, you got trumpeter Phil Driscoll, Neo, Ziggy Marley, mm-hmm. Billy Ray Cyrus, Cindy. I mean, but they're all singing your <laughs> yeah. songs, like revamps of your right. songs with you. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering what it was like to revisit those songs uh, in the year 2014 oh. with all of these uh, diverse artists letting them get their style on it. It was wonderful, you know, uh, the mere fact that they all wanted to be a part of the project was very important. Mm. And uh, to lend their enormous talents to me and those particular songs that they chose to sing with me um, was a joy. Looking for you, nights were more than you could know. You have such an expansive catalog. How do you even choose your sets and what could Iowans expect to see at Hoyt Sherman on well, January 21st? Uh, well, basically, I'm doing the songs that people expect me to sing, of course. <laughs> uh, and the songs are, are the reason I'm going to be coming to you to do this concert. Um, I've been very, very blessed and fortunate that people have been very loyal and I'm just um, very, very happy that people are cognizant of, of the, the work that I've done musically um, and uh, are still enjoying it. So that's basically what everybody should, I hope, <laughs> be expecting from me when I get to you, that they will be coming out to hear, hopefully, oh, that's my favorite song kind of thing. Right. I think it's not just your music, Ms. Warwick. I think it's 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 you as well as a just a just a cherished American treasure. Fall of twenty twenty one, you put every company on the internet on blast for not having already hired you to be a brand ambassador, and you 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 paid a video where you basically um, did a sponsored ad for Bush's baked beans, and I think it was was it Hellman's mayonnaise. Bush's baked beans. I use mayonnaise. I do. But I don't and won't ever think about putting it in my coffee. No. That's kind of dumb. It all led to every company. We got at Nutter Butter, at Swedish Fish, at Starbucks, just everybody. I think Subway, uh... But the saga I'm interested in is the one with the verified at Oreo account. Um, And my favorite tweet from you that I'd share is, Hello, what is your weirdest flavor? 
why are y'all doing the most? The one flavor was fine. <laughs> exactly. If it ain't broke, why fix it? Dion Warwick, thank you so much for your time. This was a, an <laughs> immense pleasure and uh, really an honor. So thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure, and I'm looking forward to seeing everybody when I get to Iowa for the first time. IPR's Lucius Baum spoke with music legend Dion Warwick. She'll be performing at Hoyt Sherman Place in Des Moines on Saturday, January 21st at 8 p.m. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. In about 15 minutes, celebrating the Lunar New Year. I'll talk with Iowans of Chinese and Vietnamese descent about what the holiday means to them. But first, it wasn't very long ago that book lovers and bookstore lovers everywhere were mourning what they thought would be the end of the independent bookstore. But it turns out something that wonderful cannot be destroyed even by the convenience of online ordering or a global pandemic. In the last couple of years, there has been a proliferation of new independent bookstores opening in Iowa, and the newest is Reading in Public Bookstore and Cafe in West Des Moines. Lindsay Murray is the owner, and she is with me now. Hello, Lindsay. Lindsay, can you hear me? Lindsay should be with us from the Des Moines studio. And now, oh, there you are. There That's we go. wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> It's good to be here. So, uh, Lindsay, tell me a little bit about your love affair with bookstores. Yeah. So ever since I was little, it would be my refuge. My mom would take me to Borders Bookstore and we would get the uh, Seattle's Best Coffee. I would get the hot chocolate there. Um, And I could just spend hours and hours in bookstores. So if my mom or my dad would take me, we knew we'd be there for a long time. (laughs) All right. And you, um, after you graduated from Drake University, you moved to New York City. Correct. And you found yourself drawn to the bookstores in New York City, which, of course, are, are legendary. Yes. Yep. Tell me about exploring those bookstores. What I love about New York bookstores is, one, that there's just so many of them. So whatever kind of mood you might be in, there's a bookstore to match it. And so my neighborhood bookstore was Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. And I lived in Carroll Gardens, so it was my neighboring bookstore. Um, And I would go in, and eventually people knew me by name there and would greet me as I walked in because I just spent so much time there, which is kind of the dream is to be recognized in a place that I already feel so at home in. Um, I could go on and on about all the different ones, but there's just a magic to bookstores in general. But then being in this wonderful city, particularly Brooklyn, 
um, I just couldn't get enough of it. So for people who are not bookstore lovers, because there are some out there, what do you think that magic is? What makes you feel so good in that space? I think you just, it's kind of a make your own experience out of it. Choose your own adventure where, you know, you could, if you're going in to look for a particular book, you would go in and out perhaps, or just being able to stay there. Nobody's going to kick you out for being there for an hour. You know, you just, you're surrounded by stories and there's just so much possibility there. So the pandemic struck, of course, and uh, you were in New York City, which was a a really difficult place to be um, Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, and you lost access to those bookstores. How did that change how you thought about them? What I couldn't have anticipated was that I felt like a part of my soul was being shut off, and I couldn't access it. And there is, you know, I'm kind of a take charge person, control my own destiny, and Knowing that I couldn't do anything about it was frustrating, to say the least. Is that where the idea of opening your own bookstore began? Yeah, it once bookstores. So, you know, at first we didn't know what was going on. Eventually bookstores started putting, um, you know, bags of your order outside. Mm -hmm. But taking away the wandering aspect and the browsing, um, that's really where the magic is at for me. So... You were working as a graphic designer. Mm -hmm. You and your husband both went to Drake. You had always thought that you would come back to Iowa? Yeah. Yeah, we both, Iowa, Des Moines in particular, was both for for both of us, our first home away from where we grew up. And my husband is from Malaysia, so it was his first time being in the United States. And we just, it's just that perfect size. Um, where it's not too big and it's not too small. So we always knew we would come back. It was just we wanted to launch our careers out in New York City. So what made you feel like this was the time to come back to Iowa and open a bookstore? Um, I had been at a point in my career where I could just feel something else was calling to me, but I it wasn't presenting itself to me yet. So I just kind of left myself open, you know, for the universe to plop something in, and I was just buying my time until I knew what that was. And so when the pandemic hit and feeling that sense of loss, um, it and I joined the Bookstagram community on Instagram. So just having that sense of community when the world shut down was very important. And then it was just kind of a natural progression of now I'm enmeshed in this community and I know I can't live without bookstores. And the thought of moving back to Des Moines when we have so few of them, I just kind of thought, okay, well, if, you know, we have more bookstores than we did when I was in college uh, here. So that was a change, which was, you know, a blessed change. Like it was, it was great. But I knew that I couldn't be somewhere without bookstores. So... So coming back to Iowa, as I said, I mean, there have been a number of independent bookstores opening up, not, I mean, in Des Moines, in the Des Moines area, for sure. Also other places around the state. It's Mm -hmm. a very exciting development from my personal perspective. Yes. But I can also see as you're trying to figure out where you fit into this market, I mean, you're a potential competitor, but you really felt like the, the people who are part of that independent bookstore community really welcomed you. Absolutely. 
Um, I consider all of the bookstore owners in town friends and made a point to, um, you know, get to know everybody. I took a trip out here when I was still in New York for a weekend and just met up with the bookstore owners and their love of books and their welcoming nature just it's infectious. And as soon as we landed back in New York and we're in LaGuardia and in that chaos, I just felt it all of a sudden very clearly like, okay, it's it's time. It's time to go back. I want to be part of this community. I can't wait. So I got out of our two-year lease and I moved us back a year early. So tell me about your bookstore and, and the vision that brought it into being. Yeah. So Every different aspect of myself and who I've been is in the store in some capacity. And my life mission has been to be a source of compassion and empathy and making other people, helping to make them feel less alone. And I do that in, you know, I'm so comfortable talking about mental health and about Um, grief in particular because my father passed away when I was a sophomore at Drake and um, I get my love of reading from him and so I'm going to also find different ways to honor him in the store. Uh, My love of illustration is in the store. Um, My love of pink, you know, we have my pink espresso machine that I've named Rosie after the American uh, American roommate experiment that I can't tell if that's the right title right now, but that doesn't matter. Um, Yeah. And so even just the coziness and the sense of home that I feel in bookstores is, was in the forefront of my mind as I was crafting it. You are, are, of course, when a new business like this opens, there's attention. You just had an article published uh, about you in the Des Moines Register. Mm -hmm. And, and, from reading that article, I get the sense that your personal identity as a Chinese American is a really important part of this bookstore as well. Tell yes. me more about that. Yeah. Um, all of my adolescence was spent trying to understand my identity as a Chinese American, a Chinese adoptee, um, a person of color growing up in the Midwest. I'm from Shawnee, Kansas. So representation. I know a lot of people, this is in conversation a lot right now, that representation is so important. But knowing that I can be the facilitator of that is very significant to me. And so how that looks is we're about to celebrate the Lunar New Year. So I want to do things in the store, do displays to just kind of normalize it so that the current young generations and other people who just don't know a lot about it and about Chinese and Asian cultures in America, just having that exposure, but it doesn't need to be announced necessarily. It doesn't need to be a thing. It's just normal because we have, you know, every right to to claim our identity as Asian Americans. In the last few years, uh, again, much of it driven by the pandemic, I know there has always been discrimination, but in the last few years, discrimination against Asian Americans um, has really grown. And yep. there have been hate crimes and there have been slurs. And it's been, a, I, I can imagine, a really difficult time in a lot of ways. And did you feel that in New York City? Was that uh, particularly difficult? 
Yes, it absolutely was. I um, It was very difficult. It was the first time in my life that I had been afraid for my life every day. Um, I was scared to go outside because I would hear stories of elderly people being set on fire just because two guys thought it would be funny or um, people having acid thrown on their faces. Um, and you would just hear from people and businesses all over every day of an Asian person being assaulted. And so I'm, you know, I'm alert of my surroundings by nature, but it just was even more so to the point where I could barely function. Wow. Do you feel safer in Iowa? Um, it's more of, you know, the volume of people. So it's just, I think it's more just proportional to Iowa. So yes, technically less, but I still get nervous. And I find myself often, you know, if I'm walking past someone in um, on the sidewalk, just thinking, please don't be racist, please don't be racist. Just, you know, always having to be aware and alert. And something that I think a lot of people can relate to is that people often just, even if they're well-intentioned, question or have us justify our existence here. I am talking this hour with Lindsay Murray, who is the owner and opener, I guess, founder of Reading in Public Bookstore and Cafe in West Des Moines, Iowa's newest independent bookstore. And Lindsay, I want to go back to your childhood Mm -hmm. growing up in Kansas And you mentioned really exploring your identity as a Chinese-American woman. Mm -hmm. Did you see yourself reflected in books? You've always loved to read. Did you see yourself in books when you were growing up? No. I can't even think of a single one. Um, I know they must have been out there, but largely, you know, we would be represented as very pale with slit eyes. Um, I don't remember having any experience of feeling comforted in any way through books or television. Do you remember the first time you did see yourself in a book? I think the first significant one was, I think, in 2020. Um, Kelly Young, the author, she wrote Front Desk, which it it's all about, you know, claiming your own voice and the power of writing and the power of standing up for yourself and articulating yourself in a way that can actually have a a real impact. And so even though the main character is, um, I think, 10, 11 or so, um, she's still a role model to me. Well, and uh, that that is a book for middle grade readers. Mm-hmm. I'm I haven't read it. I'm familiar with it because my daughter read it in elementary school and absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. So it's nice to know that it's reaching a, a lot of kids. Yes, um, there of course. Anybody who loves books knows that this lack of representation has been recognized. It has not, of course, been entirely corrected, but there has been a proliferation of incredible work being published by black, indigenous people of color in this country. And Mm -hmm. there's so much good stuff out there. So for you, what does that feel like as as a bookstore owner having the opportunity to, to get these books in front of people? Yeah, it is, you know, still in this industry when we have all of these books, still oftentimes the sales of 
books by authors of color are still underrepresented just in the numbers. And so, you know, now that we can choose which books face out in the store and there's statistics of sales related to that, um, it's very powerful to be able to choose. And so we largely, with our face out books, feature authors of color. And I read a lot from authors of color as well um, of all walks of life. So just having that power to get those books in front of people when it's not always done is very fulfilling for me. One of the exciting things about this proliferation of small independent bookstores in Des Moines, everywhere, is that, of course, each one has its own personality. It has its own reason that you would want to go there Mm -hmm. on a specific day when you're feeling a specific way. How do you want people to feel when they come into your bookstore? I want people to walk in and instantly feel like they're being hugged into this warm, cozy, comfortable space where they can feel seen and comforted and just like they don't have to be anything other than themselves. How do you think you can make people feel that way? First of first of all, it would be being represented in the books that we have and on the shelves. So we have books that are not just in English, but we have them on the shelves next to the English versions because I don't want to indicate that English is just the only default. Uh, yeah, and so that especially with children's literature, having bilingual books is very important to me. And we're still, you know, building up our stock since we just opened on last Saturday. But that is a huge um, point of interest for me. And looking at your events, it also looks like you are trying to create opportunities for readers to find each other, to connect with each other. Is, is mm-hmm. that part of your vision? Yes. Uh, I really care about getting out into the community and doing different kind of outreach programs or uh, collaborations with other small businesses. So we're, we've done a few partnerships already, but we're just getting started. So looking into the future, uh, what do you hope your bookstore looks like in five years? I hope that it, when people think of reading in public, it's just synonymous with comfort and empathy and safety. And just knowing that whenever, maybe if you're having a bad day or um, something's just not seeming to go right in your life, you can come there and know that it can just be a healing space for a while. Well, I hope that that a lot of people find you and feel that way. Lindsay Murray, congratulations and best of luck. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. Lindsay Murray is the owner of Iowa's newest independent bookstore. It's called Reading in Public Bookstore and Cafe in West Des Moines. Coming up in just a moment, the Lunar New Year is celebrated by 2 billion people on planet Earth. It's a big holiday and it's coming up this weekend. We'll talk about what it means with Iowans of Chinese and Vietnamese descent. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. 
It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The year of the tiger is waning and the year of the rabbit is on deck. The Lunar New Year is on Sunday. It's a holiday that is celebrated by two billion people on planet Earth, including many countries in Asia. And of course, it's been carried around the world by the people who celebrate. We are going to talk about the Lunar New Year in the Chinese and Vietnamese traditions. But of course, it's a very important part of many cultures. My first guest to talk about Lunar New Year is is Suin Machanen, who lives in Iowa City, where she is University of Iowa Global External Relations Officer of Communications and Relations. She moved to Iowa City from China in 2008. Hello, Suin. Hello. Thanks for having me here. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I want you to take me back in time. Since you grew up in China, Lunar New Year is a really, really big deal. Can you tell me how big this holiday is? Um. For most families, I think it's actually a month-long celebration. A month-long celebration, yeah, okay. For my family, we usually start it around the eighth day of the last month on the lunar calendar, um, which is Laba Festival. I think this fest- festival is mainly for people to worship like the ancestors and the gods, just thank them for protecting them for a great year and just hope for a better year. And it also is a Buddhism festival. I think they, um, it's the day they celebrate the enti- enlightenment of the Buddha. So my mom would um, go to a temple and observe a ceremony that is hosted, hosted by a group of monks. And uh, she would pray for me, pray for me and my family. And uh, um, after she came home, she would cook a very special porridge that um, because it's the eighth day, so it basically has like eight kinds of rice, beans, nuts, dried fruits. So that's how we start. How we started like the celebration, and uh, as we approach the new year, we would just you know go shopping, um, having decorations out in our house, and uh, preparing all kinds of food. And uh, of course, like on the New Year's Eve, that's basically the peak of the celebration. And we would eat together as a family, have like, I don't know, um, just countless of dishes, you know, to eat. And uh, we would watch a nationwide broadcast of uh, like Lunar New Year Gala on TV. And uh, we would set off like fireworks, basically just to celebrate um, it's just very fun. And uh, as we move on to the new year, we have like different traditions. Sometimes we visit our grandparents. We would sometimes worship our ancestors again. And uh, mm, just well, as a little kid, I always got like red envelopes from my parents and grandparents, uncle and aunts uh, with money. So I think it's just sending good wishes to young children. So I'm hearing you say that um, the the most important parts of the holiday, would you say, are family and food? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> and although it's a month-long celebration, reaching its peak leading right up to the new year, does everything kind of shut down for three days? Yeah, I know. So for me, like we always had the Lunar New Year break in the middle of our like uh, winter break and mm-hmm. my parents I think they had like maybe five days or seven days off from work okay yeah it's f- basically for a very for everyone in the big country you know it's actually huge 
All right. Uh-huh. And, and the red envelopes are, are a very important part of the tradition. As you mentioned, that's money passed on from an older generation to a younger generation. At what point do you go from being a recipient of red envelopes to being a giver of red envelopes? Um, I think my grandparents started calling them like scholarships um, after I entered college. So I still got those, you know, of, of course, after I turned 18, but I, maybe I think 18 is, you know, a milestone for you to stop kind of getting red envelopes for some people. <laughs> <laughs> and then would you, becoming an adult, would you start giving red envelopes to nieces and nephews and children yeah, yeah, when I they do. start appearing? yeah. Uh-huh, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I'm the only child in my family, so I don't have like nieces or nephews. But my cousins, you know, they have children. I give envelopes to my own children. So yeah, it's definitely something I do now. I give envelopes instead of receiving them. So what is your favorite part of the holiday? Um, definitely food. I really miss um, the spring rolls, handmade by my mom. Mm, it's it's just very. Very special recipe. I still don't know the recipe yet, but you know I have tasted like so many spring rolls from restaurants or grocery stores. That's nothing tastes better than you know the version that made by my mom. But you don't know the recipe. Is it a secret recipe? It's actually not a secret. <laughs> actually, I feel like for most Chinese people, we don't really follow recipes. You oh, know, okay, all right. Uh, that is strategically so Jill, really very creative. I would say you know just shows creativity. She can make yeah. those. Yeah, probably. And also, why it holds a special spot in my memory is I feel like it's kind of related to me being responsible for part of the my family celebration of the Lunar New Year when I was very young. Like I think my, I remember my parents like giving me money when I was just a first grader and I would just assign me the, to purchase spring roll wraps and I would just um, I remember like I dressed in a new coat, new boots and a Clutching the money in my hand and literally like spreading, spreading like a couple blocks just to go to a street kind of food vendor to get the wraps. You know, I just it was like I feel like it's a big responsibility. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'm sure you felt very grown up. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So moving to the United States in 2008. Um, Lunar New Year is not a big celebration here. It's not something that businesses close for and, and that, you know, the whole world is is focused on. What did that feel like to come to, to a place where people weren't celebrating what is the most important holiday? So I came here for grad school, so we still kind of started with celebrating with friends. And now it's still with family members and my parents. They kind of visit us often enough, so... Over the past years, you know, we got to celebrate together a few times. And uh, also, um, just pretty recently, I started volunteering for the Iowa City Area Chinese Association. So we put together cultural events, um, just including a Lunar New Year gala, kind of, and just just create a sense of a community for us to kind of stick together, connecting our roots. So this is actually a big part of my Chinese, uh, sorry, Lunar New Year celebration as a resident in Iowa City now. Is it an important holiday, do you feel, for your children? Yeah, it is. Like my oldest daughter is 13 years old and she has been like involved in performing at those different like cultural events for many years. And uh, this year she actually invited friends that is out of the Chinese community to perform with her and uh, 
you know, I'm just very proud of her for being able to kind of like a cultural am- ambassador kind of, yeah. you know, role. And uh, before I felt like kind of like appreciating or teaching my children about the heritage is a vertical process. You know, I learned that from my parents. I passed down to my children. And now from my daughter, actually, think it's more like a horizontal process for her. She, I think she feels very comfortable and confident just telling her friends and the teachers about her culture, her heritage, and invite them to watch her performance. Your kids go to Iowa City schools, yes. and in the last few years, the Iowa City School District has started recognizing more holidays from different cultures instead of just the, the Christian holidays that are, are part of um, the culture, the predominant culture in Iowa. Does that feel important to you? Yeah, yes. It feels great, you know. And I, I do want to mention, you mentioned the Lunar New Year Gala. That's coming up um, on Sunday at 4 p.m. at the Englert Theater, presented by the Iowa City Area Chinese Association. This is something that, that comes out of the Chinese community, the Chinese-American community in Iowa City. But do you invite people from other cultures to come to? Yes, of course. Like, I feel the work I do at um, the Chinese Association is... I think it goes two ways, not just myself, of course, um, other with my peers. And it goes two ways. One is, as I mentioned, like building a sense of community, but also we feel like we bring diversity, um, just like our culture, to the mainstream world. I don't know if it's the right way to say it, but that is not very familiar with like Chinese or Asian culture in general. Mm-hmm. Well, and so you're doing that horizontal mm-hmm. work, yeah, just like your children are. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's mm-hmm. wonderful. Well, Suyin, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us, and Happy New Year. Thank you so much. We are talking about the Lunar New Year this hour on Talk of Iowa, and I have been talking with Suyin Machanan, who is with the University of Iowa. And now we're going to turn to talk about the Vietnamese cultural experience of Lunar New Year. Nguyen Win is here, Executive Director of the Iowa Asian Alliance and of Vietnamese descent. Hello, Nguyen. Hello, how are you? Good, thank you so much. And tell me a little bit about what the Lunar New Year is about in Vietnam. Oh gosh, yes, a little bit of everything. When I think of the Lunar New Year with my family celebrations, I think of blessing. Um, I always remember my mom setting up the altar and making sure that we first and foremost bless our past loved ones. I also think of superstitions, and there's a lot of, oh, you can't wear that, you can't do that, you got to do that before this time frame, or don't do that after this time frame, kind of during that uh, week leading up to the celebration and post. Uh, we always hear a lot of rattling on superstitious stuff. And then I think of food. Um, of course, that's always a big one when it comes to any celebration, any culture, a lot of traditional food and candy and very specific dishes that my mom was adamant and would uh, slate in the kitchen to be sure to have on the table, especially for the blessing. And that's what we would consume afterwards. And I also think of um, good fortune and good luck uh, going along with all that blessing. And then, of course, I think of all the... Uh, red envelopes that you often hear about called the uh, Lisi, um, which all the kids are extremely excited about. And then post 
culminating the, the evening, we gather around and do like a, a game. It's actually almost like a gambling game, but it's this mat and it has your, a deer, a rooster, a fish, and it's called in Vietnamese the crab game. And like as little kids, we would take our red envelope money and start betting like nickels and dimes and quarters. <laughs> and my dad would be like, um, what, what do you call that? The uh, person uh, managing the, the gambling. <laughs> oh, wow. So, and you came to the United States from Vietnam when you were very little. So all of your Lunar New Year memories, and, and it's called Thet in, in Vietnam, right? Thet? Yes, um, So are all of your Lunar New Year memories are based on your experiences growing up in Iowa, right? It is. Yes, I was way too young. Um in Vietnam, don't actually remember much of anything of Vietnam. So all the memories were made here. So blessed and thankful that my parents kept a lot of those traditions uh, alive for us. I know that that there is a strong Vietnamese community um, in Iowa, but what did that feel like celebrating this holiday? That to many of your classmates must have felt kind of like a secret because they they just didn't know anything about it. And gosh, you know. Um, we didn't even know if it was a secret or not, you know, as you were young and you just live and you just go with uh, what your parents um, provide and give you. And so, I mean, once we realized, okay, um, this is not the norm. Most people don't know about this. And growing up, I remember going to the Vietnamese church and stuff that obviously supported this. So that was kind of our outlet. And so we thought it was normalized there. Um, and the churches would provide opportunities to celebrate that. And then, of course, doing it at home. And I remember um, it was such a special occasion that my parents were totally fine with us missing school. Like, that was a given. That was the one thing we knew we could miss school. Um, and, of course, I did go out of the question schools. Well, why were you gone? Why is it, you know, were you sick? And I'm like, well, no. Um, it, it's the Lunar New Year. I mean, you know, wouldn't you have that off too? <laughs> I when I was younger. Um, and as I've gotten older, obviously, you know, you learn, you're like, okay, this is not the norm. Um, and I remember being envious of the larger cities, like now in New York or California, where there's such a big Asian population, um, they had to recognize the holiday. So many kids were gone from school and missing from school that they had to make it an actual holiday on uh, campuses and whatnot. So in your family, you have a blend of cultures, and Lunar New Year is an important part of your culture. It's also an important part of your husband's culture. So tell me how that works in your family. That means we just get more um, events, parties to go to. <laughs> um, you know, I, I tell my kids, the, uh, the more opportunities and family you have to visit and um, to stop by and bless New Year's and events, that means the more red envelopes uh, we get. So, you know, growing up, there was just a, a few families, but uh, we would always get excited. Oh, who else do we get to go to? What other houses? Um here, growing up, like this coming weekend is the Lunar New Year, and um, we'll be celebrating with my husband's side of the family. That's expected. His parents will always host a lunch um, where we come together and, and eat and celebrate. And um, then my mom will always do something on my side of the family with all my, you know, four other siblings. 
um, in particular, the, the blessing that I mentioned earlier. Um, that's something that's very important to her. And, and there's and there's a strategy, uh, whole calendar set that I haven't learned. I always hear her talking about it, um, and she references in, in, in Vietnamese, but there are certain things you do on certain days within that week. All right. Does that mean that you still need to learn this if if you're going oh, to take over the tradition? Yes, <laughs> I know. I, I got I got the fun parts down. I got the food and the traditions and the blessing and and that down. But in terms of the very yes, very specific, especially when it comes to being superstitious or being um, um, you know, they, they follow like a, a certain calendar that she consults with that I haven't gotten into and. And, you know, and it's funny because they say there, there are many things you just don't pay attention to. It's just kind of like, oh, my mom's around. She'll cook that dish forever for me. And then all of a sudden, you one day you realize, oh, gosh, I really crave and really want that dish. I want that home cooking. And, you know, they're not a, around. Yeah. Well, New Nguyen, thank you so much for talking with me. And Happy New Year to you. Yeah. Absolutely. Nguyen is executive director of the Iowa Asian Alliance. She is a Vietnamese American, and we've been talking about Lunar New Year, a very important holiday celebrated by two billion people on Earth, and of course celebrated by many here in Iowa as well. Happy New Year to you if you are celebrating. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.